Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, everybody, we have one that uh, I know Mark and I have been particularly excited about. Now, excited is, it's a weird term to use for this, because as you know, you, you clicked on this episode, you saw the title, it probably had something to do with ticks. And that's not something that you really actually get excited about. The idea of having them little things crawling all over you and potentially biting you. And, and there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of confusion out there, not even necessarily confusion, but just worry and, and uncertainty around what could happen if you get bit by a tick, you know, with Lyme's disease and you've got all this stuff with the, uh, with the Lone Star ticks for, you know, folks in those areas and you've got the Rocky Mountain... Spotted sp- fever. Spotted fever. I mean, all this stuff out there, it can be a bit freaky. And then the fact that, like, they're hard to, they're hard to tell. You, you don't really know if you get bit by one. You don't know if they're crawling all over you. A lot of us are going to be out turkey hunting here this spring and doing other stuff where you're going to be literally saddled up into spots that ticks just love. I mean, <laughs> us and ticks are seeking out the same spots, essentially, in order to hide from these uh, these birds and uh, and hopefully shoot one. And then, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, we got ticks on the brain right now, for sure, just being that we're headed into spring. No, definitely, Jim. I mean, it seems like tick-borne illnesses are on the rise and definitely something that people really should be cognizant of. Like, if you go outside, this is something you should be paying attention to. Yes, and our guest who's here with us is uh, is the is the guy we found that we feel is just the absolute best go-to in this case. Um, an ER doctor, right? Yes, sir, yeah. But, but an enthusiast in tick Ticks and like tick-related illnesses and all this stuff. We we got a tick guy. Everybody, he's got a he's got a passion for it. That's a, a generous description, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Very generous. So uh, Charlie will have you introduce yourself to everybody listening. Yeah, absolutely. Out there. So uh, so Charles Pierce. I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm an ER doctor. So I did uh, did all my training down in in Chicago, but but have a, a wife that's from Wisconsin. So that's what that was. Ultimately, we were not destined to spend our lives in Chicago. So I moved up here, I don't know, six, seven years ago, but been coming to northern Wisconsin uh, for about 20 years, you know, largely driven by, by meeting her back in college. And so as an, as an ER doctor, I'm part of a small group, a private practice here. We cover about nine hospitals, a variety of hospitals in the city as well as rural in the surrounding Madison area. Mm. Um, I, I kind of wear a couple different hats beyond ticks in emergency medicine. So I'm a chief medical officer for a hospital system as well. So I do some hospital administration Recently joined the Navy, in fact, so I'm a, oh, wow. a Navy reservist, uh, lieutenant commander with the Navy Reserves. That's been kind of a, maybe a midlife crisis of sorts, but something, a commitment <laughs> and service that I wanted to do for probably the last two decades. Well, and, I, I hear that ER docs yeah. always have a lot of spare time, so that makes sense. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> you, you have found the way to manufacture time out of thin air, <laughs> right. I think. That, that, that's the that's secret. The, that's the next podcast. Right. Yeah, How did is. he do it? <laughs> And I've got, uh, you know, four kids and we spend a lot of time in the woods. And so that's really where, uh, you know, interest in, in tick and tick-borne illness, you know, I was born years ago, but really having having kids and spending time in the woods and doing, um, you know, different variety of hunting has really kind of made it uh, something you need to know. And boy, if you practice anywhere in New England or you practice anywhere in the upper Midwest, you got to know something about ticks. Yeah. It's just going to be, that's going to be part of your practice if you're going to, any kind of generalist. So if you're an emergency medicine doc, if you're a family practice doc, really if you're an infectious disease doc, tick-borne illness is going to be something that's going to be in your lives. And, and frankly, as you alluded to, with the growing and expansion of tick-borne illness, it's, it's becoming something that's not just exclusive to New England and uh, 
in the upper Midwest, you're really seeing this kind of all over the all over the country. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, true. I feel like you know, years ago, really not that long ago, you'd be like, yeah, that's something that's over there. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. that, that that that's that's right. those people' problem. Yeah, you go so on, you go on a hunt anymore. out west somewhere, and you'd be like, oh, I don't have to worry about ticks. Yeah. <laughs> thank goodness. Now, not so much. Yeah, there has. I mean, there has been a. I mean, that's so the the real pieces that make tick-borne illness interesting. I think are really fourfold. Is that we've seen a, and this is something that I think makes everyone have to be kind of aware of what's going on with tick-borne illness. One, we've seen this expansion of where ticks are populating. So if you look mm-hmm. at just the data that shows where ticks are inhabiting, they have just grown, and that's part of reforestation products. That's part of a variety of climactic changes that really so ticks have expanded out into areas that they previously weren't found. The other piece is, and part of result of that is you just see this growth of tick-borne illness itself. So there's been, you know, record-breaking years, year after year, just take Lyme disease, for example, of the number of cases of Lyme disease that get diagnosed. And then worrisomely, in the last, really, decade, there's been this rapid expansion of the number of diseases. So not only have you seen an expansion of the, of the range of ticks, some potential exposures, but then the number of diseases that have been identified associated with ticks has gone up. And then finally... And this happened, I think, about 2017. They identified a new tick species to be found in the United States, an Asian longhorn tick. And so this hasn't been proven to be a vector for any disease, but that just shows that the, the scope of this is, is going to continue to change. And it's dynamic, and, and that, that diamondism doesn't look like it's favoring a real positive direction at the moment. Shoot, yeah. So by the fact, you know, the fact that tick, the, where they are, if you looked at a, at a heat map, if you will, the fact that that's expanding... It, it obviously leads one to uh, determine that there are areas where ticks once weren't, and now they are going there. Is it because maybe were they there in history at some point, and now they're kind of coming back? Or have ticks been introduced somewhere, and they're spreading? What was the, what's been kind of the history there? Well, so, so part of that, I think, is that as you see some, some climactic changes, so as you see temperature changes, you really kind of expand mm. the ability of ticks to be able to spread. If you think about it, theoretically, a lot of what we did as we expanded throughout the United States is, is as an agrarian society that you didn't have a bunch of deforestation. So you really actually lost quite a bit of habitat uh, for ticks. So you know, in, in theory, then, you had tick populations that would have dwindled. While we've seen that in a variety of for a variety of reasons, that reforestation has been you know an imperative with the United States for, for you know again for lots of reasons from an ecologic standpoint. As you reforest, you then provide more habitat. So mm, it's a okay. little bit of a you're you're doing something ultimately good through reforest, uh, reforestation efforts, but but again, unfortunately, what comes along with that is is ticks. Man, gosh, those little things. But uh, so Jim, I dislike them enough. I think I might just go cut every tree down. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. You heard it here, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Mark, right. Mark is just no tree is safe. <laughs> so what is it? Uh, what is it about a tick that? Uh, I mean, obviously, if if you're not certain, I mean, the thing is about ticks is that they basically require a a, a host or something like that. What, what's their deal? Why do they do what they do? Where they they crawl up us, they bite in, and or, they. Or even, what is a tick? Yeah, what makes too. a tick a tick? Yeah, so the, what makes a tick tick, Jim? Yeah. Ooh, good one, <laughs> Brian. Cut that out. Yeah, <laughs> well played. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, so so ticks just a, like a big like background information on ticks. So uh, you know they're they're actually arachnids. So they fall in that same family as scorpions, mites, spiders. Even more so, reason to not like them. Uh, well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> the and so what so what ticks they're 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 kind of a fascinating little species because they. Uh, or family overall, is because they actually have a really long lifespan uh, for a bug. Mm. 
mm-hmm. right? Because you know you could see ticks that last two, three years. Um, and like you said, the, the, the primary role that they, they play in terms of how they move from stage to stage, and we can talk about kind of the different stages of, of tick development or life cycle. Yeah. But they really are dependent on a blood meal of some sort. And that's, that's how they get from the stage. You know, I guess we should dive into that right now. So yeah. they, they start as an egg, um, and then they move on to a larval state. And then they get a, a blood meal that then promotes molting. And then from that larval state, then they go to a nymph. It's kind of a you know, baby tick. And then from the, that nymph then gets another... Um, We'll get another blood meal again. We'll talk about the different different ways in which they do that, um, and then they then ultimately you know are an adult, and then at that point then lay eggs. The whole cycle goes over and over again. Right mm-hmm. again, two to three years. You think about mosquitoes and the longevity of a mosquito. That's rather brief. Yeah, a tick, however, and this this is really impacts the ability of their their ability to spread disease and really be an effective vector to spread disease is based on their ability uh, to have this long life. And maybe it's worth talking about, you know, vector-borne disease in, in general, if you guys want to hear a little bit about that. Because I think that's Absolutely. that's kind of the underlying foundation of all this, is understanding what a vector-borne disease is. Okay, gotcha. So, ticks are just one vector, right? They're a vehicle in which they're going to spread a disease. And that's what we talked about, vector-borne illnesses. So, it's illnesses that are, that are spread through some kind of vector. So, worldwide, the most common vector you're going to think about is a mosquito. All right, we can all think of that. I mean, oh, think yeah. about, like, take an example disease like malaria, right? That's something that's really well-known. Huge scourge on society and humanity spreads malaria through a mosquito bite. You think about yellow fever. You think about a host of things. Just as a quick PSA, because we see people all the time concerned about bed bugs. Bed bugs are not a vector for any disease that we know of. Huh. Just so that you know. That becomes something that's like, you know, as, as unfortunately bed bugs have increased in numbers in our lives in the last decade, bed bugs actually don't spread much disease. Again, Small PSA, just because we see quite a, folks, a lot of folks that come into clinic or urgent care or ER that are worried about spreading the disease. That's good to know. Our yeah. bed bug, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I, 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 Our bed I don't bugs, know that I want to go down this path too far. <laughs> <laughs> are bed bugs only found in beds? Or are they, how, I think, do they, how do they get to the bed? That's what I've always wanted to know. So, uh, you know, bed bugs, and this is, and this is something that can keep you up nights. So, bed bugs, what you'll see is they, they really like to go under like the um, uh, molding and in carpet and any, you know, anything where they can really burrow themselves underneath, underneath furniture, those type of things. And then at night, then they come out from those spaces and then they ascend into looking again for some kind of blood meal that they can get. And, you know, we're, we're an apt, as we you know, sleep during the night, we're an apt uh, meal for them. So then they ascend in and then get their meal of sorts, bite you, and then they go back into those spaces where they can hide. But they, I mean, they are resilient. Boy, if you get if you get bed bugs in a home, you, I don't know, you, you just got to... Burn it. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a, in some way, well, yeah, there's option A. That's probably what I'm going with yeah. uh, after I cut the surrounding trees down. Sure. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but I think they actually kill them with heat, though, don't yes, you they? you can, you can, yeah. So that, that, is, that is one option, so you can oh, see, okay. yeah. Um, but really, you just got to find a way as well to starve them of any kind of meal, and that's what's going to disrupt everything. Got it. All right. What kind of bug are they? Are they oh, similar? I don't or? see that. How's, where do we go to tune down on this path? I don't know much about bed bugs. Okay. You're going to okay. have to find All a right. bed bug. You knew enough to give us a little bit <laughs> oh, of yeah. like nightmares. But yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's good. Enough to, enough to get a severe case <laughs> of the Enough willies. to be alarmed. Yeah, that's good. We took us off top. But, we're, but vector, vector-borne illnesses. Yeah, like, so... Yeah, you'd think of like you were talking about mosquitoes and then these right. ticks. Mosquitoes, and stuff like that. ticks. So, so worldwide, and the burden of disease you get from vector-borne illness is rather significant. And you look at just overall, think about infectious diseases overall in the world. They account for about seventeen percent. So, wow. about one in five oh in terms of illnesses that you're going to see worldwide are going to be infectious disease. Again, illnesses are going to be about um, 
related to vector-borne illness. And again, worldwide, it's going to be mostly related to, to mosquitoes. going to be that predominant. You get into the United States, though, that's, that's totally different. So mm-hmm. the United States, the vector-borne illness, uh, or vector itself, is going to be related to ticks. So they make up, you know, 75 to 95% of vector-borne illness disease. So that's why it's worth talking, particularly in the United States, about tick-borne illness, because that predominance of vector-borne illness is related to that. Yeah. Now, is that because, I mean... Is the United States unique in that it has more ticks than anywhere else in the world? Or do it's everywhere else in the world have more mosquitoes? Or is it the medicine that's different that we're just not, like, when a mosquito bites us, it might have something in it, but we don't really get it? Yeah, great question. Because it's like, it's twofold. So if you look at areas where mosquitoes are the predominant vector, there's some kind of reservoir of disease. So there's some reservoir where that disease lives. So whether it be in, when we talk about Lyme disease, we'll get into this too, whether it be in a native primate population, whether it be in a native small mammalian population, whether it be in birds, like with, you think about West Nile in that case, there's, there's some reservoir of disease. And so that, that, for the most part, is going to dictate what pathogen or what disease you're going to see in a different area is what that reservoir is. The vector or the vehicle is really just a part of this cycle. When you look, if you try to look at the world through the disease process, it's going to be different if you look at it through the, the vectors. You know, you look through their eyes, but they they're there just to spread that disease from from one host potentially to another, and they they have kind of commingling life cycles together. Okay. Okay. Got it. Gotcha. Because I mean, the the tick isn't like I'd assume. Well, maybe, maybe not. But like, it's not like born with Lyme or this thing. It's it's picking it up somewhere. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, no, so it's acquired. You're exactly yeah. right. There are some pathogens where they are transmitted from from generation to generation within um, within take insects, for instance. But for the you know when you talked about vector borne disease, it's really going to be there's some reservoir in which they pick it up at some point in their life cycle. So go back to malaria for a second. So malaria, it's thought that humans are really the big reservoir of malaria. Oh, so, wow. so that that malarial parasite then will rapidly spread, and within a human's host, you get bit by a mosquito that then gets passed from that human host to another. So oh. that 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 mosquito is used is really that vector. So yellow fever is another example. That that's one where it's a primate, so that it lives in a primate population. It's really not harmful to that particular reservoir population. They have some kind of a symbiotic relationship, or at least they've got a you know kind of a, a mutual stand down. And then that disease then gets picked up by this vector and then spread to another disease. And that's, you know, that's how when you think about COVID, that's a zoonotic disease. So it's a disease, again, spread, that the idea behind zoonotic disease is spread from some kind of other population or animal population into humans. And so that's, yeah. you know, they still don't, well understood, not worth diving into, but the origins of COVID, but thought to be that this was a zoonotic disease that was spread in some way. Not considering there was a vector, but a direct spread from one to the other. Gotcha. Very interesting. My gosh, diseases. Yeah, infectious disease is fascinating. Very fascinating. It's part of the reason why you were so busy for the last year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So that's kind of the nature of this vector-borne, these vector-borne illnesses right. that ticks are a part of. And, you know, obviously, like you said, we have so many of them here in the U.S. Now, you were, you were bringing up the fact that, that the reason ticks need this blood meal is part of these different stages that they go through. Are you getting, I guess I'm curious, one, like how, how is an egg slash a nymph or, or whatever the, like, sort or larva. Larva, yeah. How is the egg or the larva getting that, I'm wondering. And then uh, I'm also wondering, then once you get to the baby tick, sort of, is that then the only kind of tick that bites or do adult ticks still bite? That's kind of like a bunch of questions for you. Right. All at so, once. <laughs> so you know, certainly it's not the egg that's doing the biting, right? So they have to they develop into that larval stage, and that that if we let's just zoom over to like Lyme disease for for a moment, 
uh, that's the moment when they have then this relationship. It's that larval nymph stage, early nymph stage, where they have that relationship typically with small mammals. So for the most part, when you think about Lyme disease, you think about white-footed mouse. So then that's the blood meal that they take from that small mammal, and then they have this molting stage into a full nymph. Okay. And then from that, that nymph period, that's when really you get the human contact. So that, that's the stage at which humans become, and uh, you know, humans are just a, we're a terminal host because we're not part of the, the grand plan if we're to give some kind of sentience or grand plan to ticks or to these particular ticks, but that's when, when humans begun to interact with them um, in a way in which humans can then encounter a bite. It's going to be in that nymph or adult stage. Gotcha. Okay. Got it. Gotcha. Why would an adult bite if it doesn't have like another level it can go to? Is it biting to then feed eggs? Reproduction, yeah. Got it. So that's going to be the biggest. So you you know, you can see those, you know, those just kind of massively engorged ticks that you'll pull off your dog and mm-hmm. you, you think about that, they're really dr- driven towards that reproductive stage. Okay. What now are they let's say like you said you get one of those uh, just grape like ticks, right? Like it is full, it's fully engaged in the host, Jim. <laughs> is it crawling off of that host to lay eggs or does it lay eggs on the host no typically its plan is to drop off so then it can then lay its eggs in some place that's going to be a suitable environment in which those eggs can they can then have a place in which they can to grow into to larva and those you know those a lot of those ticks that's the other piece that makes ticks such a you know a fantastically productive organism from a tick-borne from a vector illness standpoint is they'll you know they lay thousands thousands of of eggs with the, hopes, with the hopes of just a couple that can actually go on to any kind of adulthood. So they, they really, they're playing, they're playing the numbers, right? So they're, they're sending out a ton of their genetic material in, in the form of eggs with the hopes that just a couple can make it to that next stage, to that point of reproduction. Got it. Vol- gotcha. Volume shooters, Mark. <laughs> they are. <laughs> that's, that's what those are. Well, you know, so speaking of, of dropping off or, or you know, it, it, the environment in which one will encounter a tick, where... Are, are there certain areas that are more likely, like I'm sure, I'm sure geographically, right? But also like, you know, like microclimate type things within a geographic area. Like, do they love wet areas? Do they love dry areas? Like, yeah. are, are the places that you're like, yeah, I'm in a creek bottom. Like I should avoid the spot or just be like, I need to check myself after I go through this spot or, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, kind of two answers to that question. One is going to be region that you're in, right? So when you think about just regionally where you're at, that's going to be a preponderance of ticks. As you mentioned, going out west, you're really not going to be, there's not a whole lot of tick encounters that you're going to have. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, for sure. There's, and so many ticks are widely distributed, but it's going to be kind of the region that you're going to be in. But, but to your point, the habitat does make a big difference. As you can imagine, if you're walking down a sidewalk in an urban center where they just have nicely mowed grass, well-tended grass and gravel on the other side of you, that you're really not going to encounter many ticks. Mm-hmm. They're really looking for high grasses, edges, edges of woodlands areas, um, really dry environments are not conducive as well. That's why when you think about it, some degree of seasonal differences between a tick burden is going to be related to the amount of moisture. So they do they do require you know a fair amount of moisture to still be successful. And some of those really wet seasons is really going to be a high production tick year or high a high amount of tick exposure year. You can and you can look this up region by region. Actually, the University of Wisconsin has a as an app that you can download. I think it's in collaboration with a few other universities. An app you can download and you can put in your zip code and it can tell you whether there's a low, high, low, medium, or high risk of tick exposure based on what they're seeing. Oh. So you get this kind of like, you know, flag system that'll say, and then it'll tell you what kind of tick that they're seeing a predominance of. So for instance, if you, if you look at 
Iowa County, Dane County, kind of right in the neighborhood we're at right now, you can see that there's kind of a moderate level of Ixodes scapularis, which is the deer tick. So you can see that that's actually a, a tick population that they're seeing on the, the rise this year. So that's another way from a prevention and knowledge standpoint, you could say, boy, this is not a place I'm familiar with. Kind of, You can bone up on what kind of ticks are here. And then, you know, in, in those states that are participating, you can see then when tick levels are particularly high. It's like the yeah. uh, the fire danger meter for yeah, ticks. Fair enough. Yes, fair yeah. Enough. yeah. Do they have a nice like bear mascot <laughs> for it? Too, I didn't see. One. I saw a little tick on there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just know. I mean, not I can, nearly as friendly. I can think of a, f- a few spots that I've been. Uh, case in point, I was hunting turkeys in Nebraska with a buddy of mine, and we spotted these two gobblers, and we're like, "Let's go after them." And we crossed kind of through this, like it was just kind of wet, and I walked probably twenty yards. 20 yards, Jim, and I look down, and my pant legs are absolutely covered right. in ticks. And the density of ticks was so great, I could look down on the vegetation and see them everywhere. Uh, Needless to say, we did not continue pursuing those birds. Maybe maybe, maybe other people are like, yeah, I'm still going to go after them. We weren't going to go after them. We went back to the pickup. I stripped down. And on the dirt road, threw my you. threw my clothes in the bed of the pickup, but like that was a case where I'm like, there's a lot more ticks here than anywhere else I've been in the last couple of days. You know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of I was like, well, what's the why behind that? You yeah, know, you can, it sounds you, like moisture maybe. Or, yeah, you're totally right. You can see these clusters, and the, the CDC has a, a particular interest in those, and even regional, especially when you look at academics, those those centers will have some degree of reporting. Or some health departments will have reporting where they're saying, "Boy, are you seeing dense clusters of ticks in areas?" And so they kind of they want to know about that because that that is part of just them studying and understanding and looking at risk and looking at tick burden in different areas. I mean, to give an to give an example, there's they saw this again to get well ahead of myself. They saw this outbreak of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, this is a few years back in eastern Arizona, and they said, "Is it overwhelmingly higher numbers than you'd ever expect?" And so they sent some epidemiologists from the CDC down, and then local public health came, and it was in part on a, on a reservation down there. And they came, and they found these huge densities of a, a particular tick, uh, Recephalus uh, sanguine. They found these huge densities of tick, and they were particularly just matted all over animals. Mm. So they had a big dog population down there and a feral dog population, and they found these dogs just matted with them. And then there's this dog-human interaction, and they found that this was just, just this you know, hot, kind of a hot spot for, for this particular tick. And this particular tick was spotting, or excuse me, um, was carrying Rocky Mountain spotted fever and then giving it to essentially, not deliberately, but giving it to, to humans then. And so they uh, see these disease clusters that really were something that warranted explanation. And so instead of seeing, you know, they didn't start at the huge tick dis- density and then moved up. They went from disease density and moved down and found that this, this hmm. tick density was really at the cause of it. And so then you can institute a lot of public health measures to try to to try to mitigate that to try to make things better. Gotcha, gotcha. Very interesting. I know spring bear hunting, like in Montana, Idaho, lots of ticks. I can see that for sure. Right. Yeah. And so, like you were talking about there too, and I in mentioning how it's kind of a two part answer. You sort of alluded to as well, like these edges of these edges of woodlands or these tall grasses and stuff like that. I know we were just in um, the other day. My wife and I were walking through where there wasn't any tall grass, but there was a lot, it was like dense woods, and uh, and we came out just covered in ticks mm-hmm. that day too. And um, But I, I can't remember like what around it might have been. I know all the snow had just melted, so it was really wet. But yeah, is that like, does that seem to make sense? Does that seem to jive with like just anytime you're in big woods, thick woods yep. or thick grass? That's, that, that's how they kind of 
they use the topography or whatever to to jump onto you, right? Yep. And 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 think about it. Kind of flip it around for a second and say, well, what is what is that tick then? As we talked about a minute ago, you know, what is that tick's host, right? Where does it get its meals? So that's going to be you. You can say, boy, where's the tick hang out? Where the tick's going to hang out? Where it can eat? So yeah. if, if it's you can say just kind of back derive it and say, well, small mammals. Where do small mammals hang out? Ticks are going to they're going to you know they're they're going to find their way there. That's an interesting you know, way to look where at it. where do high school kids hang out? You know, McDonald's or Five Guys or something, right? That's where you're going to find you know what's that age old thing? You know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Oh. right. So <laughs> where do you find ticks? That's where the meal is. So if they if they can have that ability or they're they're going to be populated in those abilities where they can get a get a meal. Or they can be successful in the way that ticks want to be successful. That makes sense. How are they? How are they sensing that host? Like you know, a person walks by, Ooh, deer walks question. by. Yeah. Like yeah. how are they? Like you know, it's not just the wind blowing. Like I'm jumping yeah. on. Yeah. That, so ticks are. I mean, they're just kind of super fascinating in this in this regard. In the, almost in the regard that anything where they really take kind of take a deep dive and start understanding how they work. So they actually have the ability to have thermal detection. So wow. they, can, they can get some sense of thermal detection so they can get heat signatures of some sort that then can give them an indication of when there's something passing by. Akin to mosquitoes, they also have um, some degree of chemical reception where they can detect uh, carbon dioxide. So right. Oh, wow. You know, you've got, you've got mammals that are around producing carbon dioxide. And so that, those two things you're looking for really from a thermal standpoint and from a carbon dioxide standpoint, those are the two things that are, give them a sense of, of there is a host. You know, they're not, they're not, you know, jot in any meaningful way or cognizant of the fact that like, oh, there's a, there's a wonderful looking white-footed mouse. I'm going to go hop on that individual. Yeah. Really, they're going to do it from, from these other signatures that are innate within them. Gotcha. And the other, the other thing worth mentioning too is like, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think, okay, you've got this teeny little tick that's millimeters big. How is it figuring out in a way in which it can just by you, you're saying you walk through and you brush along something that it, you know, it can find a way to attach to you, and that's this process called questing. So these tick will, these ticks will climb up, you know, long, you know, usually grass, right to the end of a tall grass. And this is a great, if you really want to be creeped out, watch one of these videos. It's, there's some little, like, cuteness to it, but mostly just gross. <laughs> where these, they'll quest, and this, the questing idea is that they, they climb up this blade of grass, they get to the top of that grass, they take their, their forelegs, and you can see them just kind of wave their forelegs in the air. And so they're using this, you know, chemoreceptors, they're using these th- thermoreceptors, waving their legs in the air, and then the minute something hits by them, then they grab right on. Right, kind wow. of in, indifferent to what it is, but as long as it's something that meets kind of the criteria that they're looking for, they'll grab right on. Um, and again, watching these little videos, as you can see, are perhaps worth your while, perhaps not. It, yeah, I clicked maybe. on one of your videos <laughs> yeah. earlier, Charlie. It was regrettable. <laughs> yeah. Man, I've got, in order to stick with, sort of with what we've been talking about a little bit, I'll ask, I'll ask this one, but you mentioned how um, sometimes you can tell in a region but you know whether it's going to be like a low, moderate, or high tick year or time frame. Mm-hmm. Does that have? Does that follow a correlation of like weather patterns or like for example? I know sometimes this is this is not science backed at all, but you'll hear people, and I know I've thought of this sort of intuitively, where you'll get through a terrible winter, super cold, brutal, tons of snow. And then maybe it'll start to warm back up, and then all of a sudden you'll get another cold snap. And then, like, you'll kind of get these, like, weird swings. And sometimes I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, that'll kill him. Or, like, that ought to get him. <laughs> maybe, maybe, like, for once, you know, for <laughs> yeah. some reason this year, as opposed to all other thousands of years in history, like, that, that winter will make those ticks go away. Yeah. Like, does a bad winter make the next, like, spring and summer 
a little bit lighter on the tick side, or does it have nothing to do with it, and has everything to do with something else? Yeah, I have not seen any correlation between the two. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I can't tell you definitively, but I haven't seen, like, kind of in my reading and knowledge, like, I haven't seen that there's a strong correlation. I mean, it'd be lovely, right, if all oh. of a sudden you... Oh. Especially when you go up north, right? You think like, boy, yeah, that really, exactly. I think mosquitoes more than ticks in that case. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Or you could say, oh, this is great. Some mosquitoes got out and then we had a, in an overnight freeze, they're all done for. But, yeah. it, but it never plays out that way. I mean, especially when you think about they're spending, you know, a lot of their time they can spend down in leaf litter where they can get this kind of natural insulation that's going to take place down there, that that's really going to be, you know, fairly protective, is that what you know, they, for them. Is that what they do over the winter? They just kind of like get low and just hunker down and mm-hmm. yep. wait it out? Yep. Uh, yeah, they're not active. And so they, you don't really see a lot of tick activity till it gets above 45 degrees. Okay. So again, not a rule of thumb, but that tends to be when they become metabolically active. And so that's when you start seeing some, some tick movement. Man, that's like, that's unfo- I feel like that was actually, because I've always like had a, a slight speculation, or like you said, maybe, maybe more of a hope that that was the case. And it, and it actually gave me like a silver lining of enduring a Wisconsin weather. You're like, well, <laughs> I mean, that was horrible, but at least in the spring, maybe <laughs> the ticks won't be as bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to burst your but maybe there's some small correlation that lives out there. I'm going to choose so to I don't believe wanna, it. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I got to exactly. hold on to something, Charlie. Exactly. You know, cutting down your trees, <laughs> burning down your house. <laughs> Cold winters leading to you feeling Just better about the world. Make yourself as miserable and and as possible, yeah. and somehow maybe the dicks will be not as bad. Oh man, that's funny. There's so much to these darn things. So you know, we're talking about you know, I, th- I think we covered a lot of like the life cycle of of the ticks and kind of like where they are and what they're doing. But getting back to the the disease side of things, which is really what you want to avoid. Like I feel like y- you always hear about Lyme. Which I, oh, I, yeah. I think I somehow, for whatever reason, I, I, I add an S on to it. I don't think I'm the only one out there. Yeah, there was some changing in nomenclature. I still fall into that because I feel like there was this old nomenclature where you'd call it Lyme's disease. Yeah. But, but Lyme is what they've moved. You know, they've moved really solidly into Oh, just Lyme to that. disease. Yeah, and, and people like to, I mean, it, it's, a colloquialism doesn't matter to me, right? As long as, you, language is language, you're communicating well in, yeah. my, in my book. But then you get some, some purists are going to, you know, call you out and... Say it's Lyme disease, old, not noted. Lyme's disease. The old, yeah. the old cow coos of the tick world, ah. or cows coos, I should say. <laughs> um, is is Lyme or Lyme's? Is that is that the most prevalent of these things then, or do, or is that regional as well? Yeah. So you think about let's, like let's be United States centric for for a moment. So Lyme overwhelmingly that's going to be so. Again, to back up and you look at just say vector borne illnesses overall. Remember we mentioned like seventy five, ninety five percent are going to be tick borne illnesses. Of that, the lion's share is Lyme disease. Okay. So about 50% of vector-borne illness in the United States is Lyme disease. So, you know, that is that is the overwhelming numbers. Mm-hmm. And to get the data of, of, of how much Lyme disease, that you know, or prevalence uh, of Lyme disease, um, prevalence and incidence both of Lyme disease is, is really rather difficult. So if you go look at sources, like say, for instance, that gets published out of the Centers for Disease Control, they will publish to say, you know, about thirty to 40,000 with an increasing number of, of diagnosed cases of Lyme disease every year. In the same breath, then, they'll also say, boy, we've, you know, upwards of, I think one year was like 476,000 cases. I, right. So the difference is a tenfold difference. And the difference comes from just how you collect that data. So that data from the, the small number data that we talked about, that's really through a passive collection system that comes and feeds through the CDC. So it's reliant on reporters based on 
based on really county on the way up that's going to report Lyme disease in. It's a class two reportable disease. So there's you know, multiple classes. COVID's a class one disease. It's a mm-hmm. mandatory reporter within a short period of time. And then class two is additional, your you know, disease that needs to be reported up the chain to health departments as well as into the, gets fed into the CDC. So it's a, it's a class two that, that falls into that category as well as some like sexually transmitted diseases are in that, in that same category. And so this passive collection of data then leads to what people think is really an underestimate amount of Lyme disease that we're actually seeing. And, and the reason they, then they come up with this 476,000 cases, they go through look at insurance data. And so they pull insurance data, and from that insurance data, you can see that how many times a person was clinically diagnosed. So they use diagnostic codes then within this insurance data then aggregate it and then produce a number. So that's why there's this big number. And so when you look at it, you say, well, what is the what is the real number that that comes out of it? That insurance data has its own validity, but this other reportable disease has its, you know, the reportable passive disease burden is has its own. But it, we know overall, despite that, you know, despite these, you know, rather marked difference in terms of numbers, it's still the overwhelming disease that you're gonna see. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it seems to be growing quite like the prevalence of Lyme disease can, seems to be growing quite notably as of Correct. late. And Correct. I think, um, I mean, is it is it a matter of the fact that more people are aware of it now, so more people are getting tested for it, or comboed maybe with a matter of just increase in tick population, so increase in, I guess, vectors? Is that the right use yep. of the word? No, you got it. Yeah. Okay, sweet. No, you're, you're spot on. So that it is, one is the more you get knowledge out about a disease, the more than you can, that disease could be diagnosed for those clinicians. If we know that that... Um, that that knowledge base and person's understanding of a disease process then has early recognition of that disease and then it's going to get reported or diagnosed, that's certainly going to drive numbers up. But apart from that, and you can see this on, it's interesting, if you, if you try to look at a state and you look at a county, county by county level, and this is true with some of the more rare diseases, that you may have one practitioner in a community who is just full bore, great at diagnosing tick-borne illnesses. Like, mm. this is just what they're, I mean, this is their wheelhouse. This is what they're good at. Again, you you, you do see this in, in real data, that you could have a county, one county next to another county, where the diagnostic ratio of, say, Lyme disease, but again, more more common with some, some less common diseases, is markedly different. And it's not like, so take, you know, the counties that we're in right now, like Dane County and Iowa County. It's not like the ticks are respecting the border between the two. <laughs> yeah. right? It's not like the bacteria or parasite or, or virus or whatever it is in the, in the case is respecting this artificial border that we put up. It's just, it's born of other human factors that really drive it. Got it. But so that, so that is definitely part of it, is that getting that knowledge out and making those di- that diagnosis of Lyme disease. And then the second piece, as we mentioned very early on, and that's just the expansion of tick populations. Yeah. So that expansion of tick populations, that larger amount of tick populations, and then the more... Uh, we as people get out into the woods and get into tick environments. Yeah, right? well, they view this, it as their environment. We view it as ours. And so when we go into their neck of the woods, then you know, then there's that potential exposure. This year, especially, I mean, everybody's going to be trying to get outside as much as they possibly can. So yeah. I yeah. imagine you're going to see that mm-hmm. as well. No, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, we've seen a lot of participation increase, you know, in outdoor activities as of late. And turkey hunting, I think, is just going to be. It seems like it's already just off the charts, and how many tags are getting mm-hmm. uh, and licenses and permits and all that are getting bought up. Oh, I spring. couldn't get in. I I I oh, tried. Man. I was sitting there at you know ten minutes till ten on the Wisconsin DNR site. And <laughs> I think I got one for I got on the list for twenty twenty one. Yeah, but didn't get oh. anything. Yeah, My again, goodness. we're trying to look at northern Wisconsin. And I think I was on a list of a thousand. Is what oh. it, it tells you what you are on the list. Oh, and I was I yeah, was, those counties are tough. That was pretty deep. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, they are. So with Lyme disease, I guess you know obviously this is this is one of those things that you're you're thinking about. You get you you get ticks on you. What is, I guess, 
I guess the first thing we should talk about is maybe what's so bad about it. Like, what is Lyme, Lyme disease? Okay, yeah. Um, like, what are the symptoms? How serious is it? Is it something that comes and then goes after a while? Or is it something you're stuck with forever? Yeah, do you ever get rid of it if you're treated? Yeah. Yeah, great great questions. It, it It's it's interesting, just to back up for a second, to look at, like, what's the origin of Lyme disease, right? I think yeah. a lot of people a lot of people know this. And origin is a funny word because it's really like, when did we as humans discover it and give it a name? Yeah. So what they saw back in the late 70s in Lyme, Connecticut, so name of the town, they saw this uh, really abundance of cases of kids getting diagnosed with arthritis. So they, they then, from an epidemiologic standpoint, they said, boy, this is unusual. Why are we seeing so many kids getting diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis? So mm-hmm. a whole lot of disease process. It's yeah. rather rare in populations. They're saying, boy, this is a strange cluster. And so from that, then, they kind of dug in, and then that then bore out the diagnosis of a Lyme arthritis and then from there is an understanding of, of Lyme disease in total. And Lyme disease, you know, the, the tick itself is exodi scapularis, or the deer tick, um, or black-legged tick. Those are the other names that it carries. So the recall, remember, that the tick is simply a vector, right? It's the vessel, it's the vehicle that's going to be transmitting this disease. And it really not the disease you really think about. You think about the, the originating pathogen, right? Yeah. They're going to be carrying either a bacteria, when we go back up for like a big second, it's they're going to be transmitting the bacteria, a virus, or a parasite. You know that's what's going to be transmitted, or that's going to be carried in that vector. And so, for the case of Lyme disease, it's a it's a bacteria. So it's a it's a spirochete. Borrelia uh, is the name of it, or Burgdorferi Burgdorferi, excuse me, uh, Borrelia. Hmm. Uh, so that that's the bacteria. That's a little spirochete that's found. And so, from that particular pathogen, or from that particular bacteria, that then bears out what we call Lyme disease. So the disease itself is transmitted by the tick, but is caused by a spirochete or bacteria. Right. So just Which, to, yeah, just for, so I can clarify for myself even. So that, you know, those are the pieces to understand along that whole chain mm-hmm. of pathway. Sure. Um, and that's what they're picking up from some receptacle, like you mentioned before. Exactly. Exactly. From that, from that white-footed mouse. Yeah. And so that, that bacteria then is, those spirochetes are just kind of fascinating little bacteria or bacterium. So they, within the word itself is the spiral, I mean spiral or keep meaning hair. So if you look at it under a microscope, the, you can see there's these little twisted looking hairs is what they look like. Uh, and these spirochetes, in this case Borrelia, once it, once it gets into your system, then it can manifest in a variety of different ways. So Lyme disease, you know, it, it can really, because this bacteria can move throughout different organ systems, your body can look very different at not only different stages of disease, but affecting different individuals in different capacities. Hmm. I imagine that's part of the challenge of diagnosing it, is it kind of manifests in all these different ways. So you try to put your finger on it, and you're like, well, it could be this, or it could be that. Right, or, right. You're, yeah. exa- you're exactly right. I mean, there's, there can be a diagnostic challenge with it. it totally, to go back to that epidemiologic data to say, boy, why is there such a you know preponderance of being diagnosed in one county versus the other? And it could be that that diagnostician or that clinician is just readily able to recognize the mm-hmm. patterns within Lyme disease that's then deriving out this, this yeah. you know, more numbers or more cases. Yeah, well, I, I know, feel- uh, we'll get back to like the, the arthritis side of things. So I was diagnosed with Lyme several years ago, and I actually think, you know, several years after contracting, I can kind of go back in my memory banks and go back to a time when I was like super sick for like four days. Like I literally went from like, at least this is when I think I had it. I, I was super sick and I basically went from my bed and I'd get to the tub and I'd sit in the bath for like an hour and I'd go back to the bed. I did that for like four days straight. It's like terrible. And then, and then kind of progressively like kind of like came out of it. But several years later, I, uh, I was like, 
you know, like I'd sit down on the floor and I'd be like, you know, I'd get up. I was like, you know, felt like I was a hundred, hundred year old man. And I finally went to the doc. I'm like, Hey doc, I like, I know I'm like, you know, getting older, but I think I was still in my early thirties at the time. I'm like, I feel like I'm a hundred years old when I'm getting off the ground. Like, you know, my joints hurt. And he's like, well, what, what do you, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I hunt and fish a lot. She's like, we should do a limes check. And what he said, he's like, so he's, they're like, you, they're like, call me up. They're like, you tested positive, but it was kind of like, uh, it wasn't like just like a super hard positive. He's like, we can tell you had lime or that you have it or had it or whatever, but we can't tell when you got it. And I yeah. thought, I thought that was kind of an interesting yeah, thing. You're highlighting a bunch of really interesting parts of Lyme disease and everything you just said. So you're, you're, you're totally right. And just to capture each one of those little points. So from the first standpoint, you're really describing well kind of different stages of what can be Lyme disease. So there's early localized disease. So that's that classic thing that you think about the rash, right? Mm-hmm. You think about the bullseye's rash. The I think if people yeah. know anything about Lyme disease other than related to ticks, you know, they'll, they'll think of that bullseye rash. That'll be the thing that they'll be considering. And what, just to back into that rash for a second, it's called erythema migrans. And what that rash actually represents is that it's a local spirochetemia. So those are those spirochetes that are kind of flooding out. Yeah. Just imagine them, kind of a battalion of them that are growing in number and flooding away. And in, <laughs> the problem is that I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, just don't imagine on yourself. So okay. it's spreading out. And so then as it centrally clears, so that redness will clear on the inner port and that outer ring then gives that bullseye shape. Hmm. About 80% of people with Lyme disease mm-hmm. will present with that rash. But so that, you know, when you focus on that way, you say, well, okay, a vast majority of people are going to have that rash. Boy, that, that makes it easy enough to diagnose. But boy, that rash doesn't really cause all these symptoms. So you don't have a whole lot of symptoms with the rash other than the present, uh, presentation of the rash, other than its existence. So in and of itself, that 80% may, you may totally discount it. Or it could be in a region of your body that you just don't look at or don't notice, and that, that rash could be something that you don't even really appreciate. And that's part of the education getting out there. And, and mm-hmm. from, from, from a population standpoint, as well as from a, a physician or health system standpoint, um, is that recognition and understanding of what is, what is Lyme. Can, you can better recognize that particular, that particular rash. So that's that early, that early stage you can see of Lyme disease. With that, as you may have had, and again, trying to go backwards diagnostically, you know, you can certainly get kind of a viral syndrome, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a term I think we're all hearing within this last year. So this viral syndrome, you just kind of feel malaise, achy, mm-hmm. may have a low-grade temp, may have a frank fever, but mm-hmm. it can be nonspecific. So you may mm-hmm. be in the midst of, you know, flu season or, mm-hmm. or better yet, you know, it could be spring where you're more apt to get um, exposed to Lyme disease, or excuse me, to the Borrelia, to that bacteria. You may get exposed to it. You may get these viral-like syndrome and just not think anything of it. Mm-hmm. You think, boy, I just, you know, I you move through it. Exactly. And yeah. you pass through and you really just don't, you don't present any other kind of symptoms. So that really can, can be insidious then. So it can be hard to capture within that period of time. So again, that's early localized disease. So the first stage, that's like days three to day 30 in when your person's going to present with those kind of symptoms. And then the next stage is going to be what we call early disseminated. So disseminated just means widespread. So it gets spread out of your body. So early disseminated mm-hmm. disease means, boy, it's moved from just that, you know, the, that's those spirochetes that you see kind of mounting a reaction to your skin that you're seeing with that erythromigrams or that uh, bullseye rash. And then early disseminated, you're really going to start manifesting other symptoms. So these are the times when you start worrying about really severe disease processes that people can have. And when you think about Lyme's being potentially life-threatening, that's within that period of time. That's going to be weeks to months. So Mm -hmm. a person can not think anything about a rash or maybe they felt a little achy, but then weeks to months later, they start having either neurologic symptoms, so central nervous system symptoms or peripheral nervous system symptoms, or start even having cardiac symptoms or heart symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so that that's within contained kind of within that stage. And then as you spoke to in your own personal experience, 
again, try and not, you know, you're, you knew the diagnosis. We know the diagnosis. We got to the end point. So um, that's the late, uh, late disease that you can see, that's when you start seeing the more arthritis. So you start seeing that Lyme arthritis. You can yep. just kind of this roving arthritis from joint to joint. And that can have a whole lot of kind of boy, hard to pin down symptoms. And so that can be a really, that's where you can have this diagnostic challenge. And so you can say, how do, you know, how do we get to this diagnosis at that point? And it's really part of it's going to be knowledge and having a good mm-hmm. clinician like you had that said, boy, I think this is what's going on with the otherwise healthy person who's developing you know, arthritis-like symptoms, this is what kind of fits, you know, that particular picture. And you spoke too, really pointed out really well, it is, from a testing standpoint, it is rather challenging. So not to, we get a little bit of the weeds on this one, but the, you know, when you go in and say, boy, I just want to be, I'd like to be tested for Lyme disease. And that, that's a little challenging. When you look at these recommendations that come out of the CDC and what's called the IDSA, which is the Infectious Disease Society of America, they they provide some guidance to say how, how best to test people. And really, if you have a strong clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease, like a person presents with the bullseye rash or had a you know, clear tick and then subsequent symptoms, that's pretty straightforward. You don't even, they don't even recommend sending testing at that point. Hmm. That person's just to be treated. And again, that goes back to how do, we, how do we misunderstand or how do we not really know our numbers? Because so many of those people never get any kind of testing sent, which is an easy way to capture positive oh, tests. Oh, interesting. They're so just they treated. just get treated. So, for instance, if you were to see me you know, in the emergency room or in an urgent care or another clinic setting, and you come with a bullseye rash and a tick, tick exposure, there's no, there's no utility really for me sending any testing on you. It is, a, you know, it is a diagnostically, you just make that clinical diagnosis there in part because the way the testing, the predominance of testing that we do for Lyme disease right now is we're actually testing for the host response. So when he drew your blood, mm-hmm. what he was looking for, or she, I don't know who your, your clinician was, but what they are looking for is recognition of your response to an infection, not so the, an antibody response. They're not actually looking for the thing itself. So they're really looking for the shadow of the Borrelia, not the Borrelia itself. Interesting. And so when they, when they drew that test on you, and this is a, just a great example you provide, is that what they look through and say, yes, there's an antibody response, and then there's a reflexive test that follows that, and then they characterize what those antibody response were. And so when you, when you have um, an exposure to, it's just stick with infections, exposure to some kind of agent or infection, and this is true with you know, COVID, there's antibody testing that's taken place over the last year, you're first going to mount an IgM response. So that's a type of antibody that you're going to respond. I, capital I, lowercase g, capital M. You're going you're gonna to mount that response. And that can be, you know, that's going to be days to weeks when you can start to see that curve go up. So that curve is going to go up over days to weeks. So you may, if I was, if you were to come in, go back to that example, you present at a clinic, I see you, and you've got this bullseye rash tick exposure, I could go send that testing off, and it could be totally negative. Because you haven't, again, I'm testing your response. If you have not mounted a response, I'm not, there's no shadow of the disease that I can detect yet. Like it, it just oh. hasn't been exactly. in you long yep. enough. And, and a good example of that, there's a, there's a couple of diseases that are just common, like, like mononucleosis. We know that if we test people early on in mononucleosis that we won't see anything. Hmm. Um, similar with COVID, if you test somebody for an antibody response for early, early on in the disease, you may not see anything in terms hmm. of antibody response. Because again, you're testing for the host response to the disease, not looking for the disease itself. Okay, and so that you know that then, when your when your doc got back to you and said, "Yeah, I think this is it. I can't tell you when, but I can tell that you you know that you are positive for Lyme." So that's saying you as a host mounted an antibody response sometime in the past. You've got a clinical syndrome that fits this. I've got diagnostic evidence now with a test that says you had at some point an antibody exposure, an exposure that then resulted in you you created antibodies against Borrelia. 
Mm-hmm. And then again, it gets a it gets a little sticky in terms of how kind of the ratio you can get of IgM to IgG, the ratio of these two different antibodies that can give you a little more information. But yeah, that's a that's a great example. And that's also the, the what's problematic with the person could say they come in with you know someone has say you know vague symptoms that don't really fit, and there's other diagnoses that could meet, and you get a Lyme test, and they live in an endemic area where there's a ton of deer ticks, and there's a ton of Borrelia, and already in your area, and they come back and you their antibody test is positive, and they come to the conclusion that that was Lyme that was causing that. You've got to really kind of pull that apart to understand, boy, did I just see, did I just conclude falsely that, yeah, you were exposed at some point in the past to Borrelia, but in fact, what's going on right now has nothing to do, right? True, true, and unrelated. So there's oh, true, you did have a prior exposure, but right now what's going on with you is vastly different than what I, and so that that becomes this kind of you know, the, the interesting challenge of trying to diagnose somebody, uh, particularly when you think about late in that course of Lyme disease. Yeah. Talking about, I mean, you brought up antibodies there. And I mean, from my grade school level medical knowledge, you know, the antibodies are the things that fight off an infection, like something that's not supposed to be in your body. That's your little police force that goes and tries to get it, get rid of it. How is it that Lyme disease I mean, how is it that it, it takes so much time to manifest and that it can spend so much time in your body and your body do, isn't able to like, I mean, the fact that it can make its way and cause problems with the heart, problems with like, I think respiratory system and stuff even, like, how is that we don't fight it off and get rid of it? Yeah, so, so one, I'm impressed that in grade school you went over antibodies. I'm impressed with that. <laughs> Maybe it was middle school. I can't remember. Nonetheless, I stand impressed. It's a good school district you must have been in. Oh, n- nothing. Well, my kids f- are in the same school district, so I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so, I mean, that's a great So, there's something interesting about spirochetes. So, the other, so to go up to spirochetes back for a second, remember that's the type of bacteria yes. that uh, Borrelia is or that, you know, the, the causative agent for Lyme disease. Syphilis is another one. Leishmaniasis is another. These are other disease processes that are caused by spirochetes. Obviously, different types of spirochetes, but still spirochetes. The int- and the interesting thing about a spirochete is it has like the ability somewhat, and it's kind of poorly understood, at least by me, that it doesn't induce a big response because there's something about the surface nature of that particular bacteria that it doesn't necessarily indu- induce a response in a way that's going to rapidly cause a person to be sick. So let's take, for example, other bacteria. So a, a common form of bacteria that people can get really sick with was like E. coli. Mm-hmm. Okay. And oftentimes you get that someone gets it as a bladder infection, it migrates into the bloodstream, they get profoundly ill. The immune system is readily able to, your body's readily able to recognize this is foreign, this is, this is something that should not be there, mounts a big immune response, gets you, you know, and gets you quite sick. Because spirochetes have this rather insidious nature and thus bear out an insidious disease, they can move all throughout the body. So you can find, you know, you can find these spirochetes in very different tissue types. The one exception, though, you don't really get respiratory disease with, with um, oh, okay. that, the, the, kind of the two exceptions that you, uh, the two things in Lyme disease that you don't get. You can think almost any other system of our body is going to be impacted. The two that won't are going to be really a respiratory system um, or GI symptoms. So if a person got presents it. and has GI symptoms or respiratory symptoms, you really, you got to shy away from the diagnosis of Lyme disease. But it can get in all those other tissue types. Okay. What, what about, you know, we're talking about, I guess, uh, diagnosing something like really early on, like, yep, you've got the bullseye rash. Here's the treatment, which I, I think when I had it, I think I was doing like doxy like twice a day or that yep. for 21 days. Yeah, it's always changing kind of, yeah, moderating recommendations, but no, that fits perfect. Okay. And then compare the, or contrast that to like possibly years later, right? So what, I guess, what, what are the long-term effects for maybe like those two people? Like, oh, I, I diagnosed it early on, was treated, and then like years later treated. 
Right. Um, that's a really good question. So if you if you end up with kind of a Lyme's arthritis that happens in rather chronic states over a long period of time, you can see degenerative disease. So you can see it can cause really long-term implications for a person's joints. That's certainly the case. This is actually, you kind of walked us into a rather kind of, um, I'd say controversial is maybe a way to put it, that there's a, a little bit of a disagreement between patient advocacy groups and some of these big organizations like the Infectious Disease Society of America. There's a, there's a patient advocacy and, and then a host of clinicians within that group that will account for something they call chronic Lyme disease. And this is the idea that a person really has this long-term, despite treatment, they just have persistent amount of these, you know, spirochetes that have found their way to just need ongoing suppressive therapy with antibiotics. Uh, on the other side of that, it, the like, again, take, for instance, that infectious disease uh, community will say, no, that's not the case. You know, if a person's adequately treated, we don't have any data or objective data, at least, that that person's going to have any long-term effect other than the like arthritis we talked about. But um, they do talk about this idea that you can have a, kind of a post-Lyme disease syndrome. So if you get adequately treated, and then six months later, you're, after six months, you still have persistent symptoms, again, more subjective symptoms. You know, they say that that's something that's kind of a syndrome that follows it. So not really, they don't fit it into the same disease state. Mm-hmm. So that, it, you know, it's hard, to, it's, it's hard to figure, you know, these people are clearly experiencing something when, mm-hmm. they're, when they say, you know, they're worried about chronic Lyme disease. They're clearly having, you know, it's, it's altered their life in some ways. And so there's just this, that dispute between these two factions is a way, poor way to put it, but these two groups of saying, boy, this, this group over here is saying, it's not, you know, chronic Lyme disease is, is not the persistence of spirochetes. You shouldn't be using ongoing antibiotics, where this group is saying, yes, it is a persistence of spirochetes. Yes, you should be using antibiotics. Gotcha. It's like an overinflated answer to your question, but kind of... No, no. It's just into this other no piece. Yeah. yeah. That's what, I mean, and that you totally answered it, because I was like, well, then do you treat that person again? And it sounds like that would, well, depending on, I yeah. guess, you know... right. Where you you think about it or whatever yeah, or yeah, how kind you of think where you about fall. it mm-hmm. where you fall yeah, yeah. maybe yes maybe no but how is it the you, when you brought up the fact that it can affect other like basically everything besides the rest the respiratory and the GI tract the like the heart and some of that stuff that's that is actually life threatening about Lyme yeah like how how is that like what would it do what, and is that only if left untreated then for a long period of time that it would just it would just diminish its host into eventually a life-threatening situation or is it that yeah i don't really even know so how to ask that question no it's a good it's a good what the hell is it doing to you (laughs) exactly yeah so if you think from a from a heart standpoint and i'm going to contradict myself for a moment remember when i said the the reason these spirochetes can be insidious is because they don't amount much of a response Mm -hmm. so that's that's true to a point. So once there becomes a burden of the spirochetes, then they start inducing a response. A lot of foreign things that get into your body, particularly from an infectious standpoint, really is going to mount an immune response and then create inflammation. So when these spirochetes, so let's look at the heart just for a second. Um, when these spirochetes, you know, get into the, the heart tissue, into your cardiac tissue, into the muscle there, they can induce a, a carditis or a myopericarditis. So anytime you throw itis on the end of something, it just means inflammation or infection. Yeah. So they're inducing an inflammatory response or a big inflammation uh, response to the heart. And so then that then, and when you talk about Lyme disease in particular in these two disease states, it actually can slow conduction patterns through your heart. So when you think about the heart, in at least my simple emergency medicine view of the heart, not a cardiologist, I say there's, it's like a house. So you've got kind of three big components of a house. You can have a structural component. That's usually the valves, the walls of the heart. 
you're going to have an electrical component. So that's really the, the impulses that get sent through the heart. And then you're going to have like plumbing. And the plumbing is going to be really just, you know, when you think about a heart attack, those are the blood vessels that then supply, you know, that they're going to be supplying blood and thus oxygen and other nutrients to the heart. So three, three basic components. So when you get this Lyme pericarditis, it comes in, causes a ton of inflammatory response to the heart and these carditis, myocarditis, or myopericarditis. And then that then results in some slowing of the electrical move, the movement of electricity through your heart. So mm. that conduction, you have this conduction delay. And so what you can see with this conduction delay, instead of your typical like lub-dub, 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 you get this slow of impulse. So you get this, as that impulse is slow, your heart rate can slow down. So that, that becomes what you call a heart block. And so Lyme will induce this heart block and put a person into a potentially terminal slow heart rate. And this can be any age group. I mean, years ago, I took care of a, a young person down in Chicago um, who had Lyme-induced um, pericarditis and complete heart block. So there's a complete dissociation between where the pacemaker of your heart is, the very top portion of your heart, and then the electrical induction below. So as if you just went down to the transformer box here in, in your house and just decided to cut basically the, the, main, uh, the main power that's coming into the house. So they, a complete dissociation between the two. And so that can require, you know, they need treatment, can certainly require, treatment can include not just the antibiotics in that case, but can include that that person may need a pacemaker to override and take over. And it could be a temporary pacemaker or it could lead to a permanent uh, blockage of that ability. And again, not blockage as you think of heart attacks, whereas that's the blockage you're talking about in a blood vessel, but more blockage of impeding conduction of electricity through that heart. Man, that's terrifying. I'd say everything about Lyme that I've heard about, luckily, I, I don't believe I've had it. I don't think I've had it. I'm pretty darn sure. Um, it just slows... It's like, it's thing is that it just slows things down. I mean, it, it slows the heart down. I mean, when you get arthritis, you end up slowing down. I mean, everybody I've ever heard who has it says waking up sucks. You, you Like, you get out of bed and you're like, your eyes are really sensitive to the light. I mean, everything just, it just, just beats you down. Definitely yeah. less Ugh. so now, but that is something I remember. I'd be like, I'd wake up in the morning and be like, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. <laughs> I don't, is that yeah. a thing? Well, I so, mean, so chronic inflammation. I mean, that that's a fair... That's a fair description of having a chronic inflammatory state okay. is really using a whole lot of metabolic reserve and really impacting then your ability to be overall functioning. Yeah. I mean, again, just because we're in, you know, within the year of COVID, that's what you think. And some of that overwhelming inflammatory response is driving a lot of the symptomatology that a person can have for sure. Okay. And the other big piece is so we you know, talk about heart, but your nervous system also can be you know, hugely impacted. Again, when we're talking about in that period of early disseminated limes, right? Not that first period when you just have the rash, but you get into this longer period out where it's weeks to months. And you guys are familiar with Bell's palsy, so it's, mm-hmm. it's a facial droop that a person can oh, get yeah. that's non-stroke related. I know somebody that got limes, and that was one of their right. symptoms. Yes, yeah. so that's um, there's you know, a few things in medicine that are, that are ab- absolute certainties. But if a person comes in with with Bell's palsy on both sides of their face, that's almost always Lyme disease. There's, okay. there's almost nothing else that's going to cause a person sides. on both sides of their okay. face. But yeah, Lyme, Lyme can certainly induce Bell's palsy. From a long-term standpoint, we start getting into that late disseminated disease. You can get something called Lyme encephalopathy. What that is, is really a cognitive slowing. So when you talked exactly about, you know, because it's kind of like slowing impact it can have on people, that they can really have significant reduction in their cognitive function because of that chronic state of really, it's, you know, a neuroinflammatory response. Gosh. In a shorter term, when we get back into that middle, that middle land of, 
of um, of early disseminated Lyme, you can see Lyme meningitis where it gets you know into the you know the meninges is, is that tissue that's going to be covering your whole brain all the way down your spinal cord. You can get then that can become inflamed and lead to headaches, pain, so forth. And so that can be a whole another component in terms of the neuro aspects of Lyme. And in fact, Lyme, and that's what makes Lyme kind of an interesting disease, is it can have really a impressive array of neurologic symptoms that a person can hum, come, on, come in with from a sensory change standpoint, from a motor standpoint, as well as just a, a general how you feel. It's brutal. And everything about it, too, I mean, it's just so, it's like we've said, it's so incognito. I mean, even back all the way to the ticks, when you, I, I know you mentioned, and we kind of got a, we kind of got a bit of a write-up or a, a prep sheet from you, and even just when the tick bites into you, it's, it's, it's saliva prevents your body from even knowing that the tick bit into you, you know, feeling that bite or whatever, kind of like mosquitoes do, I know, too. And it's like, everything about it is just oh, undercover. They're cra- they're I mean, it's, it's like the CIA of... <laughs> <laughs> operative of diseases or, or whatever. It's unreal. Well, think about the ticks. So ha- as they evolve, like think about what their goal is. So they're not a mosquito where they land on you, bite you quick and get away, right? Sure. They're, what they're doing is they really, the way they've evolved is they want to have a, a period of attachment to get their blood meal. Yeah. So they have to do this. So if they were to come in and bite you and that was going to be something that you quickly recognize, like, you as a human or, you know, we're, we're again, we're not a good, because we're not really a, a part of their whole evolutionary cycle. We're just a happenstance. Um, they, but yeah, if you had, exactly, ouch, you flick it off, and then it, it's going to be something that's not going to get what it's looking for. So yeah, they've got, in their salivary glands, they've got this cocktail of, of, of proteins that can, uh, one, can you know, be an immunosuppressant, so suppress the immune system so you don't get a big response immediately. Two, an anticoagulant, so something that's going to thin the blood. Because otherwise, they try to you know, try to have that meal of blood, and it's going to start clotting on them, but they don't want it to clot. So they, mm. they actually have a little anticoagulant in there. And so that, you know, that kind of slurry of things can, can come in that then allows them, and then a little anesthetic, so that they don't, they don't, you don't feel it either. And so they can get to that goal of being attached to their host for two, three days, so they can really get a, you know, a robust, a robust meal from you. Oh, my. A, a lot of those it's things so- that they're doing, they actually sound like things that we do in medicine for but like for positive reasons is there anything that we've actually learned from ticks like oh that's a good idea we should do that too it's a it's a great because you're exactly right so there are there are blood pressure medications like ace inhibitors a type of blood pressure medication that's really derivative of venom so they you know Hmm. it's a pit viper venom that they took and they found that they had something that could block a receptor that in the case of the snake it was it was causing profound hypotension so dropping somebody's blood pressure profoundly in a way that's attempting to you know really subdue that individual or organism I should say so yeah we took that and said took that knowledge and you can also think there's there's other ways in which we especially in in surgery where you try to induce paralysis for somebody that really goes back and is, you know is almost derivative of almost entirely derivative of dart frogs and the neurotoxin that comes out of those dart frogs so it is you're totally right there's a whole there's a whole ecobiological uh, therapeutics that comes out where people go out and they you know they they collect all different kinds of animal species and then take those and have a mimicry of try to learn from that. Um, you can see that as well in, in um, when you when you go into a lake and you get something that sticks to you. Oh, a, a leech. Jeez. Oh gosh. Yeah. So a uh, leech. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> I hate yeah. those too. I, I got like a minute ahead of myself. So get rid of the trees and the water. Jim. So so leeches the same way. So they've got an anticoagulant, so something that keeps blood from clotting in their saliva, and so derivative of that, they actually developed blood thinners for humans to prevent human disease. Based on that leech-related saliva, wow. I don't. I don't know that ticks. We've ever gotten to the point of that, yeah. um, 
But again, they, they include very much the same things. There's an anesthetic within there. There's an immunosuppressant, so an anti-inflammatory. And even in cases when you, when, and we can get into talking about at some point, uh, tick paralysis. So they do have a neurotoxin in some instances that, that is in that saliva as well. Yeah. And then unfortunately, the bacteria get into that saliva as well, and that's how they get transmitted from that, uh, from that tick to you. We should talk about that. So tick paralysis. Yeah. That, that actually is a result of the tick and not so much whatever it might have been carrying, like a like Lyme disease or something, right? Yep, exactly right. So yeah, you you're could, totally right. Even, so, a, even a tick that wasn't carrying Lyme could give you tick paralysis? Correct. Okay. Yeah, so that is, that is not, that, the tick is not a vector in that particular instance. They just happen to have this neurotoxin within their saliva. And it's so sporadic in which it occurs, and it's, it's kind of fascinating in a scary way that, you know, and there's a, I don't, you guys ever watch House? I'm probably dating myself. Yeah. Do you remember that oh, show back yeah, in the day? Yeah, it was on, yeah, kind I've of the, seen you it. Know, um, so there was a case they had with that, with this woman had this ascending paralysis. So they started, you start losing function in your, your lower extremities on your way up to the point that you then, as you get paralyzed from, from your, from your toes all the way up, then you get to the point that you get paralysis of your diaphragm, can't breathe and can thus be fatal. And, and those, that, that show was, you know, kind of highlighted this fact that as once as long as that tick is attached to you there's a continued exposure to that neurotoxin so it's continuing to induce that paralysis and it's not unless you remove that tick do you see reversal of symptoms hmm. and again it's not a bacteria it's not a it's not a virus it's not a parasite it's inherent within that tick so it's born of the tick and not it's something cocktail. else they picked up and then i mean if you unplug the tick and then like it all goes away mm-hmm. or some of it stays or most you're no longer getting it yeah, so the, stuff. the studies I've looked at, you usually get good neurologic recovery for an individual. Okay. Um, the reversal, I think in the in that, again, this is uh, poor medicine of me, but in that house episode, she's being like wheeled up to like another floor. They're going to do some big invasive testing on her and house gets on the elevator and like locks the doors and searches her head to toe and like pulls a tick off and like she gasps and starts breathing. It's not like that. I mean, it'd be wonderful <laughs> if it's like that. I mean, that would be... <laughs> he saved me. But, the, you know, they got to condense it down. But the principle of it is similar in that the fact that once you remove that inciting neurotoxin that you can then start to get neural recovery in those individuals. Interesting. Hey, speaking of removing ticks, oh, that's yeah. something... That people, it's a good segue. It's, it's not like you yeah. can't just go and be like, there's a tick that's in, you know, embedded in, just rip it out. Right. How, how does one go about that? Yeah, doing so, it properly. So, um, so you're exactly right. You want, you, there should be some care that's taken within it. It's not like an overly complicated science. I know, uh, an individual is an ERA doctor up north who it would just, it would just kind of drive him nuts because he'd get people that would call an ambulance because they had a tick attached and get an ambulance taken to the hospital to have a tick removal. And he would always bring up these stories as, and, uh, is a way to say kind of a misunderstanding of it. But but it is something that, you know, it, you do want to do correctly. Because as you pointed out, if you go and say, boy, I'm just going to grab this tick and I'm just going to pull it right off, the worry you have, and I guess it's it, to understand a little bit, let me just back up for one moment. So the way, let's just stick with Lyme disease, the way that Borrelia, so that little bacteria, the way it works, it sits in the gut of the tick. And okay. so when the tick attached to you, attaches to you and starts taking this bloodbath and it's using its salivary glands to produce saliva with this cocktail of things just so that you keep bleeding so that you don't feel it and so forth like we just talked about. The, it's not until that Borrelia migrates up into those salivary glands did you actually get that inoculation of Borrelia and then thus lead to Lyme disease. And that typically, if you look at the studies, is like 48 hours of tick attachment. That's oh. why if you get the ticks off early, you can, you can prevent in and of itself getting even a potential of, of getting Lyme Lyme disease. Okay. Um, 
so because it sits in the gut, so you can imagine if you go to pull a tick off and you go and you squeeze it, the idea or the principle behind it is you go to you go squeeze it, all you've done is kind of squeeze out the contents of that tick into you. Mm. Right. So it's attached to you and you go and you go squeeze it, you're squeezing out contents of, of tick like gut. A turkey baster, you just nope. Right in and just squeeze it right in. Oops. So, so the idea then, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so the idea being you, you want to really grab the tick right, and tweezers is the simplest way to do it. Um, you know, get a set of twi- tweezers and grab really close to the skin, right at kind of the head parts, and then very gently pull out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. As simple as that, right? That's, I mean, that's kind of like I've had to do it a handful of times, and it, I mean, it's kind of like you're pulling on it, yeah. and your, your skin is, right. you know, stretching with it. And, and like you said, because you, you want to try and get that head too, right? Well, so so yes, yes and no. So there, there's some degree that I think we all don't want any tick parts stuck left in us, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Just, I mean, yeah. I, understandably. But really, the the idea is to get it just, you know, as best detached as you possibly can. You can potentially cause more harm than good if you start digging out little pieces. Okay. But if you get the vast majority of that tick out, you're going to be good to go. Um, okay. Again, because it's going to lose ability to function. If you're thinking about just Lyme disease, it's unlikely then to continue to pass Lyme disease into you or anything along those lines. Okay. Yeah. And so you're going to effectively kill it by removing that back half. But yeah, you want to you want to you know in a nice slow fashion, um, you want to get it get it detached from you. No, I think because of that, a lot of people have come up with ways that you know, I mean, I've read countless ways where people are like, "Well, I came up with one way where you right. don't even need to pull it out. Right. You just put a dollop of put X Y Z exactly. On it. Yeah. Put some. Vaseline on it, some essential oils yep. on it. Put yep. some vanilla on it. Put yeah. some. I mean, what have I, you? I, found? I've got. I've got a good, not a good What's story, yours? but so pee on it. No, no. <laughs> that's always the answer. <laughs> the multiple choice. Like that's always the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, stub my toe. Pee on it. <laughs> yeah. Um. No, well, uh, Mike Scobie, who we podcasted with the other day, we we're tur- oh, yeah. we were turkey hunting in the in uh, back in our Washington days, and. Uh, he got a tick stuck in his shoulder. And we didn't, you know, this is back when, like, this is really my first encounter with a tick, you know. And uh, it is, I mean, we'd been camping, not showering. Like, it had been in there for a couple of days, you know. So, we we didn't know anything about it. But so, you like, you read all these things. So, he's like, I'm like, well, we'll put a, because, you know, I think the last thing we wanted to do was, like, pull it out and then leave contents of the tick or break it. We're like, so we'll do it one of these other ways. So, we put a little Vaseline on it, watched it for a little while, did nothing. Like, you know, tried to cover the butt. They're like, oh, they can't, they breathe through their butt. He can't breathe. He's going to back out. Like, okay, well, that didn't work. And so then we tried the uh, the match method, which uh-huh. we'd also heard about. Burn it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All that did was uh, aggravate him. And I swear I watched him like burrow in and grab on <laughs> even harder. So eventually we just pulled it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I know you, you highlight all the different methods. So um, if you look at really the, the overall guidance that you want to give somebody is you just, I mean, the simplest way is just have tweezers go right, the, right close to skin and then slowly, mm-hmm. slowly pull it out. There, okay. are, there are commercial products out there. There's like the tick twister that you can get, which is, it's actually pretty slick. It almost looks like this like little, what's the best way to describe it? It's like this teeny little hockey stick that's, that's uh, split at the end. And so it's meant to force you to do that same method because as you, as you put it uh, close to the skin, it slides those little tines right at the base, right close to your skin. And then you do this little twisting motion and it pulls okay. it out. It's, I mean, it's pretty slick. When, yeah. when we have people, at least personally, when I have people that I see like in an urgent care or an emergency department come in and they're worried about a tick attached, we do have them. I think we keep some products similar to that, like mm-hmm. in the ER. And you just, it's a good teaching moment because you can just teach somebody how to do it and you send them home with mm-hmm. their own little, you know, tick twister that they can, they can use. Yeah. I was, hmm. I was turkey hunting Missouri also with Mike. Actually, this was a different trip. And we had a, a gobbler. He wasn't gobbling, but he was just over the rise of this hill. 
and I could hear him, we could hear him spitting and drumming, and he's just like hanging out. We're like, oh my gosh, any second he's going to pop over this. I mean, he was close, you know? And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm, you know, you can't move, and I can feel something on my stomach down here, and I'm like, oh my God, I know what that is. And uh, anyway, I mean, like an hour later, this gobbler's long gone, whatever, we lose him. And uh, I pull my shirt up, I'm like, yep. There's a tick, and he's buried, and I could, I could, ah, I could feel him. Like I'm like he's biting me right now, but I really want to shoot this turkey. And uh, must have not had the right cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> one of them, one yeah. of them nymphs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so uh, I look down. I'm like, well, he's buried, and we're uh, we we're down there visiting another guy. And again, this is one of my early encounters with ticks. Didn't know a whole lot about. It. I'm like, well, dude, this guy deals with ticks all the time. We were talking about ticks. Like he's an expert. I'm like, he's gonna be an expert at pulling this thing out. And uh, again, cause I'm afraid to like pull it out, break it off. Cause you, th- that's what I'd heard. It's like, Oh, if you break the head off, then you're gonna get like an infection or something like that. So anyway, so I hunt the rest of the day, Jim, with my little partner, uh, just buried, buried <laughs> in my, in my stomach. And I get, I'm like, Hey, I got a tick, you know, you got any, uh, you know, uh, expert of, you know, how do you, and he goes, uh, yeah, he just pulled out. Think. And I'm like, well, I could have done that about four hours ago, but and he probably turkey basted all those bags. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah hopefully just... not. <laughs> I do like the turkey basted. <laughs> I was solid. just using one that's the other just, day for yeah. some reason. So it's yeah, just as you do, yeah. Firmly in my memory. <laughs> not an item that gets broke out that often, actually. Yeah. When you're uh, messing around with brake fluid sometimes. Oh, oh okay. Enough, okay. So. Turkey basted. Yeah. Sometimes yes. those little buggers, though, sometimes they'll wait a while. Like, especially if you see them on dogs. Like, they kind of got to, like, walk all over the dog before they bite in. I don't know why. Like, they're oh, searching for just question. the right spot. I've, I've heard that they like in, they do that. What are they doing? Are they, I've heard they're looking for a mate. I've heard, what, what the heck's going yeah, they, on when they're... they're really, they're looking for, like, a terminus. So, like, they're looking for, like, an end spot. So, when they, for us, they like the, like, edge of clothing. Yeah. You know, they really mm-hmm. like that because they'll walk along and then they kind of turn a corner on your socks or underwear line, pant line, mm-hmm. or up in the armpit. Um, yeah. Dogs, they get in the groin and ears because, right, again, they're getting up to a skin fold and they just kind of attach themselves. Yeah. It's a sneaky spot. Right, exactly. Totally adaptive, right? If they can find a spot where they can just, they're planning on moving in for two to three days right mm-hmm. this isn't just like out in the open right this isn't just like an overnight hotel party this is something where they're going to be like well i gotta behave myself for a couple of days because i want to be here yeah 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 and i think uh well and we're going going back to like you know symptom of like that bullseye rash it's like okay well maybe 80 percent of people present that right but if that thing is in a hard to see spot you mm-hmm. you may have had it and might not even see it i'd imagine right mm-hmm. or like you said you're you're out say you're out hunting you know backcountry for two three days there's all kinds of rashes you're going to come home with and you're going to think not a lot of them right <laughs> yeah. yeah especially as a non-painful rash that's going to be something like oh, that just yeah who knows maybe i got in something yeah and then you're just going to kind of move on with your day as long as nothing else mm. yeah yeah so yeah we're talking you know folds of, folds of skin i mean there's a lot of wild places that uh that a tick can end up so don't uh if you are examining yourself you know don't just go for like the old i took my shirt off and there right. wasn't one on my right. chest it's like right. well yeah. yeah, you got to dig deep. Yeah, be be thorough. Yep, use a mirror. Yeah, don't be <laughs> modest. Be thorough. I agree. Yeah. Um, don't use Eric Barber. Uh, He's just not a good go-to guy. Huh? Eric and I were. We've, I think <laughs> we told the story on the, on the on the podcast before, but we were bear hunting in Idaho, and we'd got done for the day, and uh, you know we're all friends here. You know we're in bear camp. I'm like, you know, I was getting undressed. I think I was just in my boxers at the time or something. I'm like, I'm like, hey, Eric, you know little help here give me a little tick check before i you know put my other clothes on and he goes yeah you're all clear i'm like okay cool i'm like well i'll 
do this myself to, as well. You know, um, uh, it's good to have redundancies built That's in, right. Jim, right. particularly right. if you have Eric checking for ticks. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, there's one. There's one. I think I found like four. I'm like, Eric, what the hell? How did you not even see these? He goes, well, I don't have my glasses on. I'm like, well, just tell me that then. Uh, like, I, <laughs> oh, you wanted me to actually check. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I think I think a couple a couple of those might have been buried too. Actually, the little bastards. Really? God, I now when you're out there, are you getting like uh, different kinds of ticks with different kinds of diseases? Because I know that's something we were also thinking of hitting on a little bit here. Because like Lyme from deer ticks is is the one that's on everybody's mind. I know, especially here. But then we hear about Lone Star ticks. Are those the ones that make people allergic to red meat? Uh, yeah, yeah. got it. Yeah, and then. Well, it, was there another kind of tick, or was it just another? There's the Rocky Mountain I mean, spotted fever. I mean, you got yeah, deer ticks, wood. I mean, you got a bunch of listed here. Yeah, ticks, I gave you guys a bunch. Ticks, yeah, um, yeah. wood tick is one you're going to think about in terms of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or that Rhocephalus sanguine is the other one, which is a little less common that I mentioned to you early okay. on about that uh, down in um, down the southwest when they had that outbreak. Okay. Of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Got it. Yeah. I am infinitely curious about the one that makes you allergic to red meat, though. That is, I mean, that is a fascinating. Totally fascinating story, and they, there's a there's another podcast out there, uh, Radio Lab, that did a deep dive yeah. on Alpha Gal. Okay, uh, and it is kind of they just do this kind of, and they talk to some of the people that are involved in this. It was about 20 years ago now, I think, or not quite 20 years ago now. But the but the story it, it's it's fascinating because it involves metastatic colon cancer, Martha Stewart, <laughs> Lone Star ticks, and meat allergies. That's the story. It comes as all those. I mean, that would be like the chapter heading. For it them. sounds oh like goodness. the setup for some like wild joke. <laughs> right. you it know? does. It, yeah. What do you get when you cross? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that the the story is uh, is that there's a, a chemotherapeutic agent that was developed called cetuximab, and so cetuximab is a monoclonal antibody. So it's a derivative antibodies that they produce to try to treat people with metastatic colon cancer. So metastatic meaning colon cancer that's widespread. Hmm. And so what they found was when they started ministering. This and it was an infusion, so it was given through the IV um, or intravascularly. So they, when they started infusing people with that, they started to see reports because you know in phase four of a trial, so at the very end after you're starting to prove something, they have a way in which they they track events that people have, looking for allergies, reactions, so forth. And so they started to see a cluster of people having severe allergic reactions to this cetuximab. So you have people just you know you know profound allergic reactions. And the thing that was curious about it is for the you know for the most part. When you have an allergy to something, you have some kind of exposure initially. Your immune system then gets exposed to it. You're not allergic. That, that first time, you don't mount a response. So then you then your immune system says, well, okay, this is a little odd. This is a little funny. And then subsequent times that you are exposed to that. So take peanut butter. You eat peanut butter once. It's not a great example. But you eat it once. Your immune system says foreign for a variety of reasons. And then that subsequent time, and even subsequent times, your immune system amounts a bigger and bigger hmm. allergic response. So, and that's what your immune system's driving. So they saw this and they said, well, this was on like the first dose. We're seeing first dose response of a person having a profound allergic reaction. Mm. Oh. And so they sent it to, a, I think it was a group out of Virginia that then started to look at this and say, boy, this is curious. And these are a, a group of folks who are studying allergies. And they said, why, you know, why is that the case? One, is that, that was the thing that was unusual. The second thing that was unusual was in a distribution that was basically from boy, it was like Oklahoma all the way to the mid-Atlantic. Mm-hmm. It was just this band where they saw, these are where we're seeing all these cases of a severe allergic reaction. The rest of the country is really not seeing much, but we're seeing this, again, clusters drives mm. a person to say why that was the same for you know Lyme arthritis. That was the same yeah. with that weird collection or that unusual collection of Rocky Mountain Spider Fever. So the same thing, they said, boy, this doesn't make sense. So they, they then start to study to say, why, you know, why is that the case? And so they, they looked at it and started to understand that there was a, a portion 
um, of that antibody that they that was within this cetuximab or in this medication that was binding or reacting to these mast cells. These are cells that uh, really are, are play a big role in how we have an allergic response. And they said, well, it's this alpha gal. It's this. Um, it's galactose, uh, 1,3-alpha-galactose. Um, it's, it, it's a place that has kind of a, a receptor to that, that that's driving all this. This alpha gal seems to be the, the connection between the two. Sounds like a planet. They, alpha gal, I hardly yeah. know her. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, they, there's somebody in the lab, as, as I've heard this story, that was working there, and they said, well, why is this? Why are we seeing this weird band in this very astute person? And this is like the reason why it's nice to know a little bit of everything. The astute person says, boy, it, it really seems to fit that same distribution where we see Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mm. Like it seems to cluster around the same time. And so they took a you know a great scientific and imaginative leap and said, boy, is it tick exposure that's driving this? It, concurrent with that, they were also having folks that were adults that had eaten meat their whole life starting having mounting really kind of significant allergic responses to meat. And they were starting to see those clusters around really finding them in that same band. And so then from that, then they, they were able to then go back and say, drive back and look at the you know, look at that Lone Star tick, realize what is what is happening, what is happening. Again, this is a moment where I'm going to contradict myself. What is happening is that they these ticks will go bite some kind of mammalian, so some kind of mammal, non-human mammal, which has, you know, within it this this alpha gal, this particular polysaccharide, it's a sugar. And then when they when a person gets bitten by that tick, even though I said tick saliva has immunosuppression, they get it gets introduced through the skin and so that all of a sudden the immune system says, this was foreign, this was foreign Thus, this alpha gal must be foreign as well. Mm. So then, the next time that that person, or the subsequent times that person's to eat again, mm. non, it's it's non primate mammalian food, just say beef for example. Then all of a sudden, that that alpha gal, that galactose one three alpha galactose, hits their gut. They the immune system had just been primed and ready to say this ain't good. Yeah, and then they mount a big immune response to it. And it happened in a delayed fashion in those folks because the time of transit get through the gut versus through the IV with the cetuximab. Okay. And the reason it's associated with uh, Martha Stewart, because I know that's the question you're begging to ask, <laughs> is that... Because it gets clicks. <laughs> if, if, Martha Stewart's, if Martha Stewart's in your headline. <laughs> well, uh, it, in fact, you remember insider trading with Martha Stewart when she yeah. ended up in, in prison for six months? That was actually related to that cetuximab. So that was that, that, uh, that pharmaceutical company and that product. Oh. Uh, so there's all that's how it all ties back in together, and so the there's continuing an ongoing study to understand this alpha gal um, this alpha gal reaction and allergies to say you know they're seeing some some waning that they get with folks they're trying to figure other you know treatment modalities and understanding that but it was kind of a, a, a cool confluence of of interesting things that all kind of brought this you know Very brought much. this to bear yes. to understand it. I mean, ticks are already my worst nightmare. Then you get they just one got that worse. causes <laughs> one with an allergy to red meat. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I also, you know, you're talking about clicks. I, I, I'm already writing the copy, Jim. You're never gonna believe what Charlie says about Martha Stewart at <laughs> one hour twenty two minutes. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, like one of the weirdest things that I find every time I listen to, uh, you know, I got, like I got a, I got, yeah, I think two sisters in laws who were in, in, um, you know some some sort of medical field and you know talking to you yourself and other doctors it's like you guys go to schooling and all this stuff you have all this experience and you learn all this stuff about how the human body works and how it reacts to certain things and it's like then you got guys like us over here who have never gone to a, a single minute of medical school but somehow Not we get a medical bit, doctor we get bit by something or something happens to our body and our body 
knows what to do to react to it. And that's just the difference of like your subconscious versus your conscious self. And, and, you know, I mean, if I get the common cold, I don't know the first thing about how to, I mean, I know you take like Tylenol, you drink water, you get some rest, like that's all conscious stuff, but the bot, your body's actually fixing it or attacking it or doing stuff. And it baffles me how we, like, then I'd go to the doctor and they'd be like, well, what's wrong? I'd be like, I don't know. And they're like, well, clearly your body's fighting it right now. So something in your body knows what it, what's wrong. It's like your brain is somehow your self that speaks and is conscious doesn't know at all. It's weird. Yeah, that, that innate immune system is just fascinating. Very much so. Wild stuff. That was somewhat mildly related to ticks there. But that was I'm, my aside. No, it's it's all good stuff. I do I do want to, you know, we're talking about a variety of ticks, variety of tick illnesses. And it might be difficult to do over a podcast without like a visual, but like like what are some tick ID things? Like, you know, sometimes you get you're like, well, I got one. I couldn't deer tick, wood tick. Who gives a tick? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my, my advice to, to folks, because I think you're totally right, descriptively, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to lead you astray. So the, the one thing that is, um, I think, really valuable is, is you can go, like the CDC, you can go and just, if you just Google CDC tick ID, it'll bring up an ability to, oh, wow. in like okay. a, an ability to just like identify ticks. For a period of time, we were giving out uh, to, po- to patients that would present in, I think we still do this at some of the urgent cares that we cover, it's a little card that is produced that just allows them to identify ticks. Mm-hmm. So you can just give that to the person and they can give you a good identifi- you know, identification of, of a tick because that can be something that then, again, it's, it's nice to have that knowledge to say, boy, that was a wood tick versus a deer tick versus, right. you know, and if you really kind of want to advance your knowledge and get to the point to say, boy, and, I, and my in-laws who've, um, who live up north out in the woods, you know, they're not going to go in and ask somebody for that. I mean, it's just that mm-hmm. experiential nature that they say, I know what kind of tick this was. Do I need to? Do I need to be concerned? Mm-hmm. You know, and that will, you know, that kind of knowledge you can derive. But it really, I, I would get on there and look at those, look at those visuals, like it's that like, CDC tick ID. Really look at those visuals, and that can that can mm-hmm. help you quite a bit. Once oh. they get engorged, it's like really, from my standpoint, boy, I can't identify anything. Okay, yeah. Now, then it. they're just a, you know, it looks like a, you know, funny looking raisin. Like I, right. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, because like, otherwise, I feel I do feel like everybody basically just calls. They're like they see a tick, and like oh yeah, it's a deer tick. Yeah, yeah. Like everything just ends up being so, a deer yeah. tick. Or it's all. like Kleenex or Q-tips. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> <laughs> need the need the the tick card. It's like a tick lineup. Yeah, that's him. That's the guy. That's, that's the guy. That's that the one. Did. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Uh, please face left. <laughs> well, and also, you know, I think people, you know, you hear lime, 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 right? Or I also hear guys say like, oh, I well, I got bit by a wood tick. Like not a big deal, but that I think that's what you were saying. Those guys are carrying the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The wood, right, the right, wood tick. right. So that I think that one thing that's helpful, I think, from an important distinction between the two, is kind of how you're going to address and how you're going to treat. So if um, if you can say, well, definitively identified this as a deer tick, and I know that this deer tick was attached for just to when we get in dig into a little bit of treatment and treat and pretreatment for a moment or prophylaxis. I know I'm pretty confident it was a deer tick. I know that it was attached probably for, for two days. And I know that, you know, I know that it, you know, I've waited a couple of days before I see it. You can give a person treatment of just a single dose of an antibiotic. So that doxycycline you mentioned okay. earlier. Gotcha. So that can certainly be helpful because then it kind of drives that ability to prophylactically treat somebody or, you know, or drives kind of concerns or things you should look for. Uh, but you're totally right. I mean, the, the, the thing with the, with the weed, wood tick, right, you identify it, but, you know, especially if it's been engorged for a period of time that's been on you, you know, it's just going to confer a risk that you really can't modify at this point. So you just know, well, i got to look for if I start having symptoms. If I start having symptoms, then that's good data to bring to that clinician that you see. So, boy, this was the tick that I saw, and then you start having symptoms, high fever or rash, when you think about rock, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, 
or that is good knowledge to bring with you mm -hmm. at that point that you're going to, you know, you, you choose to be evaluated. Um, the other question that comes up often is, can I just send the ticket to be, hmm. you know, can I just send it to be, you know, um, tested for uh, for Lyme disease or other diseases, or excuse me, you know, Borrelia or other or other bacteria? Because um, you think about, well, you know, analogy would be, I found a bat in my house. I decided tried to remove it. It bit me in the hand. I still have the I still have the bat. I'm going to send it in and have its you know necropsied, and someone's going to open up its brain and figure out if it's got rabies, right? So that you really with tick disease, it's you kind of get yourself. It takes one it to find somebody who's going to to actually test a tick and go in and see if it has you know positive for Borrelia is going to be hard to do. Two, it's a time consuming process. So by the time that you've gotten to that, you know it's really kind of cats out of the bag. Plus the diagnostics and the ability to test for these more remote diseases or uncommon diseases is just not there. So you really just don't have the capacity to do that. I mean, wouldn't it, it would be a nice world if you had a tick attached for a long period of time, send it in and say, oh, that one had, that had the causative agent for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, you know, Rickettsia, Rickettsiae, you should go on some kind of treatment or something should happen to mm -hmm. keep you from actually, you know, developing disease. Mm -hmm. We're not even, you know, we're nowhere near that as being mm -hmm. in reality. Um, so really that, your ability to, to ID it can, can have some ability to determine what's going to happen to you down the, down the road. And your ability, and certainly on the clinical side, it's nice to have that ability to know exactly what it was. Yeah. Now, I think my last one that I'd ask is just tick prevention. I'm wondering, like, I mean, there's physical things that you can do that I know I've heard of. I mean, there's, there's like, the off-deep woods, or there's permethrin, and then there's obviously, like, wearing long garments tucked into one another. Um, I'm also curious if there's, like, uh, my dog, uh, both my dogs actually just got Lyme shots. Is that a thing for humans? Oh, good question. So, yeah, there's, there's a couple ways to think about it. There's like a, there's a just a mechanical way of preventing yeah. ticks attaching, which you just you highlighted perfectly. Light colored clothing, so you can identify them easily. Tucking your pants into your socks, um, you know, just doing tick checks, so make sure they don't kind of, you know, mechanically or otherwise visually get attached to you. So that's mm -hmm. great. There's like, we almost consider it like a chemical prevention strat strategy that'd be using permethrin on your clothes, as you mentioned. You know, DEET, anything that's a DEET, that's a product that's got DEET 20 to 30 uh, percent used on the skin, that's a good preventive agent. You alluded to essential oils. There's some people out there that are big advocates. I don't know that there's good data on that. Um, but people like, like eucalyptus, I think, and cedar oil. There's a couple yeah. ones that people use as a preventive standpoint. They're not going to harm somebody. They may make some company a lot of money and not really, you know, benefit them. But, you know, I don't, I don't really have much I can speak to that. Is permethrin going to harm me, by the way? If uh, you got to put it in your clothing. Okay. It's not something that you apply directly to yourself. Okay. But it, there isn't, I have not seen uh, any data or reports in terms of permethrin otherwise being harmful to folks when, especially mm -hmm. when it's used in clothing. Pretty much harmful to the cats and fish from yeah. what I've gathered. Yeah, that's, that's what, and that, I mean, I could be, there could be other data that's out there in the world. There could be some California restrictions on it. I don't, I don't know that, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Okay. Um, I would say from a personal standpoint, I've used it and it does seem to be very, very effective. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I 100% I agree with you. And then you, you think about what you're alluding to is like, is there a vaccine, right? Or yeah. is there any other kind of pharmaceutical or other treatment or preventative uh, yeah. thing that you can use? There was a vaccine, or I should say there currently is a vaccine that got FDA approval in like 1999 or thereabouts. It was taken off the market in 2002 just for lack of utility. The manufacturer just start, stopped making it. So that... Um, that has not been abandoned at this point. There is, um, I can't remember where uh, it's out of, but there's a, currently they're in phase two or phase three trial of another vaccine okay. to use, again, from a prevention standpoint. Um, the, the other piece is there's, they're studying, again, those monoclonal antibodies. So d can you preemptively give somebody antibodies before oh. they get an exposure that mm -hmm. you can try to then, you know, we saw this with 
you know, COVID studies early on in the year to say, boy, high-risk people, like in that case, nursing homes, you give them this antibody, so that gives them a confers them a degree of protection. So that that additionally is uh, um, is being tested. And then on this like kind of whole other scale, there's prevention from a population or a large-scale standpoint, and that that stuff is just kind of you know like fascinating, crazy. Release a crapload of possums on your property or something. That, that, that's strategy number one. <laughs> yeah. Possums I, and guinea hens. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to, like, fact or fic- fiction, myth or legend, what's what's going on with the possum? As far as I can understand, I think they're they're rather voracious eaters of ticks. Okay. I, again, I don't know. I've had them get into our chicken coop. Um, mm. I don't know that I'm a huge fan of the idea of trying to really cover myself in possums. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, t- I'm or torn. My <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm torn. Uh, cut all the trees, add possums. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Your guinea hens, I mean, those are, my, my in-laws will swear by guinea hens as yeah. being oh, a great consumer. Pete Schreier just has like chickens. which I, Chickens I've heard similar, but I don't know the numbers on that. Yeah, Pete Schreier says he has chickens that just roam his yard, even though I think he, well, I shouldn't even divulge where he lives because he said it's not it's Might be some rules. ordinance. Uh, <laughs> but they just roam his yard. He said they, they demolished the ticks. The whole possum I can't thing, call I, it. I think they eat turkey eggs too. So like, I'm I'm torn. Like you oh. know, you're eating you're eating ticks. Good turkey eggs, bad. Yeah, kind of a win lose. I don't know. I got to, I got to. I know we're going long here, but this whole oh, thing is right. just it's like been, it's been phenomenally interesting. Send them. So one was yeah, I'm going to backtrack and and go into some like those um, I guess more long term things that could happen to a person. Um, you know, you're talking about like the encephalopathy. Yeah, you got it. Encephalopathy. Okay. Uh, nice, nice work. I was, I, was, I was almost there. Is that, can you test for that? If somebody is like experienced, like, man, I feel like this, or this is what's going on. Can you look at that and be like, oh yeah, that's what's going on here. I think it's a, like we talked about earlier, the testing can be, if you have a reasonable clinical suspicion that this is what is going on with the person was, was within, within kind of the, the neck of the woods of Lyme disease, sending Lyme testing can help kind of suss out that. The problem is that there's so many other things. So you, you really, I think it'd be a fool's errand if someone was to show up and say, I, I got cognitive slowing, I'm not feeling quite right, I just want a Lyme test. I think, I think you're going to miss the boat in the potential oh. of all the other processes that could mm-hmm. be going on that could cause that. Is it reasonable to put that within the spectrum of the, the rest of a person's workup or evaluation for, for those kind of symptoms? Totally. Like, mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's totally reasonable, especially if they're in an area where they had potential exposures or they, you know, if they're, if they're living in an, an area that has really no disease, then it probably is not going to benefit you a lot. Mm-hmm. It would be really fascinating if you lived in an area with no disease, a person tested positive then for, um, for antibodies against Borrelia. That would be kind of just fascinating mm-hmm. little piece of data to say, boy, wow, that person should not be antibody positive. Um, so again, I'd say within the scope of, of a workup that a person's getting for, for a host of symptoms, it's, it's a reasonable piece of evidence and data that you can get. But if one was to just, just, you know, really kind of hone in just on that and, and a super narrow vision, I think that it could be problematic Mm -hmm. and mislead you. Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I can see that. And and my, my last one here is, uh, really just some things that you wrote down and it's kind of like a, a fun fact here. Uh, but over 800 species of ticks in the world. You know, we talked about like Gross. three or four here today. <laughs> uh, 84 found in the U.S. Jeez. 12 of those 84 are human biters, though. So they're not all biting humans. You're correct, yeah. Okay. And remember, the, we're not as a, any part of the natural cycle of ticks. Right? We are totally incidental right. to their worldview, and we're actually problematic. Right, just think about it from the tick's purview for a second. Tick bites you, gets attached. 
you go inside, it falls off in the carpet, gets vacuumed up, is dead in a carpet bag, right? That's right. not helpful mm-hmm. to it. We really want it wants to get picked up by deer, other you know, medium-sized mammal, depending on what stage of life it's in, and then get dropped off in somewhere Stay that would outside. be... Exactly. Yeah. It wants to be, drop off someplace that then it can successfully reproduce and reproduce itself. Mm-hmm. So humans, we're just not... I mean, we're not within within their within their spectrum of what they want. We're just an Again, un- un- unfortunate yeah. host. So exactly. there's some of them, though, where they like they might end up on him and be like, gross, and jump <laughs> off. Or <laughs> I would... <laughs> that would be really nice. Yeah. Whatever I can do to make myself I'm, I'm as not sure unappealing. It's, 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 I'm not sure they know that until they're vacuumed up in the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to carry around. I'm going to carry around like a little sign that says, right. <laughs> "I have a very clean house and we vacuum a lot." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> an iRobot will eat you. <laughs> very interesting facts, though. This was awesome, Charlie. Thank you so yes. much. I'm like, amazed that you can even actually like step foot outside, knowing everything you know. Oh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't see it otherwise. <laughs> no, spend time in the woods. No, that's just, you just got to know what you're getting into. But yeah. I, I don't, this would not deter me one bit. I mean, it, again, just it's worth being knowledgeable, worth knowing what you need to do to prevent it and then what to do if you're starting getting signs or symptoms. But boy, I, I hope nobody takes away from this to stay out of the woods. Yeah. 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 No, unless it's my turkey spot. That's yeah, fair, right. yeah, fair enough. Yep. Don't go to Mark's spot. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we will we will cap it at that. And then for all of our listeners out there, as usual, thanks for listening. And, and let us know. I mean, just like comment below uh, on YouTube or on Instagram. And uh, just thoughts around ticks, what you're going to be uh, what you're going to be looking for out there this spring or whenever you're out and about. And um, if you have any interesting, I'm I'm curious to hear all that. There's so many different tales out there of things you can put on the butt of a tick that makes it back its way out. I would love to hear some some real life, not just anecdotal from your grandma or something like you did it and it worked. I'm I, curious. I would but I would also I would follow that though with Jim with the advice we received today. Yeah, you should probably that's going to be out. the best practice for doing that. Yeah, you should just probably just pull it out, don't squeeze it. It's it's the easiest. But I am just genuinely curious. Yeah. Somebody was just like I put sriracha on it and the thing just Yeah. You know, jumped out. And you know, PSA you know keep these things in mind yes. you know look around when you get done you're tired from a day of turkey hunting or whatever you've been doing outside take the few seconds look yourself over thoroughly possibly if you have a good friend or somebody you trust not uh, eric not eric <laughs> have them assist you with those spots that might be a little bit harder to see and uh stay tick free yes charlie it's been amazing you've been an awesome guest on the podcast so much information uh super cool so thank you a ton yeah, oh, thank you guys pleasure's mine all right well we'll see everybody on the next one bye guys thanks everybody bye all right that'll wrap it up for this episode of the vortex nation podcast thanks everybody for listening hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the vortex nation podcast leave us a review or comment down below we want to hear what you have to say about the show maybe what you like maybe what you didn't like so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be you can also follow us on instagram at vortex nation podcast we'll be posting about each episode released so that way you can go back find these things maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range out in the field or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food so again everybody thanks and happy hunting and shooting we appreciate it have a good one